we're doing a like return to running progression, right? After like a knee injury and just like walking around, not doing anything athletic, you can call it pain, you can call it awareness, whatever it is. It's like a sort of a three out of 10. Like when, when they, when they do something, that's even pretty benign. They're like, yeah, like I, I noticed some discomfort, awareness, stiffness, whatever you want to call it. It's just something that like they're there. It's registering that like one knee is different than the other. I'll say like, if your baseline is say a three out of 10, if we do this like new activity, whether it's like a strength exercise, a running progression, I don't, obviously if you walk around at a three out of 10, I don't expect it to be a zero, right? Because <laughs> we're doing something new that's like harder than what you're normally doing. Yeah, that's good So point. I'm like, as long as what we're doing is like pretty close to what your baseline is, like it could be like a little bit over. So again, these are arbitrary numbers, but if you walk around at a three and we go up to a four, maybe even a five, I'm okay with that, but I don't want to go much beyond your baseline because then you're going to get probably more sensitive and it's going to drive that cycle of inhibition. So, you know, it's somewhat subjective, but I'm like, obviously I don't want someone to do something where they're in like sharp debilitating pain. But if you walk around and you feel your knee, just like going up and down the stairs, if we're doing a running progression, then you're going to feel your knee because you feel it walking, right? Or you feel it doing a body weight squat. And so again, like when I introduce a novel activity, I'm okay with some awareness and even pain as long as it's like kind of close to their baseline and doesn't exceed it too much. On the flip side, you talked about, you know, the person that will, they were very reluctant to let go of the crutches and they were kind of holding on to that on the kind of flip side of it. What about somebody that they're doing better, they're progressing, and then it's almost getting close to discharge time for lack of a better term for our strength coaches. It's now closer to, Hey, you're going to get into practice. You're going to play in games and you're good to go again. Have you had athletes, patients, whatever terminology that go back and, and they're like, man, I just, I don't know. I don't know. And like, how had you handled that? And then how do you recommend it to our uh, coaches out there doing any rehab with their athletes? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. And that's really, it's like, it's kind of, it gets into the, the psychological readiness, right? Um, and, you know, you discharge somebody and then, well, they might have some doubt about going back to the sport. I, I mean, look. At, at, at the extremes, like it does become sort of a psychological issue, but I think that the physical and the psychological are kind of one and the same. I think if you use the right progression, that's seldom an issue. Um, cause if, if, if someone's like, well, I don't feel comfortable like going back to, to practice now, it's because you didn't do enough challenging things in rehab to make them confident. But what I mean, if you did? And what if their listeners yeah, like, but we did. Yeah. I mean, I think that situation is more rare than because I think a lot of times people use it as a cop out. They're like, oh, well, you know, like the athlete's not ready and they blame the athlete. It's like, well, you didn't, you didn't do things that duplicate the speed and intensity of it. And it, like clearly in a controlled environment, whether it's like a strength and conditioning setting or a rehab setting, you, you can only mimic the game so much. But I think for the most part, you can somewhat simulate the physical demands of the game. I mean, look, like I don't have like 10 like role players or people where I can play like a small sided game in my clinic, right? Um, but we do things we like, we'll do reactive things. We're doing things with like full intent. We're running at max velocity. You know, we'll do some like reactive cutting. Granted, it's not like reacting to an, an opponent doesn't have the same sort of perceptual demands as like playing a sport, but like, as far as like the, the stress on the tissues and the joint, like we are simulating that. Um, but if that does happen, we're like, you know, in the, in this theoretical situation, someone has gone through the right physical progression. They still have sort of some, you know, psychological doubt, then I think you have to kind of like, just take a step back and it's like, all right, like, what is it that, what is it that you're, you know, 
you're reluctant to do, and then just try to reverse engineer that situation and do put them in put them in a situation where it's like, all right, well, what's the closest thing to the thing that you fear that you can do without a lot of apprehension? We're going to start with that and then and then sort of build it back up. And it, it always comes back to that. It's like, what do you want to do? Where are you now? And like, let's try to find a systematic progression from point A to point B. And in, in the scenario that you bring up, maybe you think they're quote unquote ready, but if they don't feel ready, then maybe you take a step back and just sort of build them back up and then hope that at the end of that sort of second sequence or progression, they're further along than where they were at the end of the first progression. <clears throat> no, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm sure that's helpful for our listeners out there. One of the things you said that really resonated with me right there was the fact that maybe you didn't replicate the exact demands of the game in practice from a perceptual action, but you did with the joint and the muscular yeah. specificity, specificity. Wow. That was a mouthful. That's something that I took a lot of pride in, you know, doing my, my rehab work with the guys on the field before they'd get to practice. Talk about how you guys do that and kind of help guide um, our listeners with how they should kind of structure some of these things to be able to do that, whether they're in a private practice like you or at the university or uh, college uh, setting. Yeah. And that, that comes back to like, there's always this debate between when it comes to like change of direction and agility, right? It's like, it's, I, I think a lot of times people create these false dichotomies. Like, well, you're, you know, it's the, the, the fixed rehearsed drills versus the reactive perceptual as if, and like most coaches that I know, like no one's doing like totally one of the, I don't, I don't really know too many coaches who are like this boogie, boogie straw man of like, <laughs> you're only doing like the five ten fives and like the, things that look really good that are rehearsed, but that's, that's more of a strength and conditioning debate in rehab. You absolutely, in my opinion, have to do the rehearsed stuff first because you have to know that like that, the joint and the tissues that were injured can handle Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you about our membership site. If you find value from our podcast, you are guaranteed to find more value inside of the Strength Coach Network video library inside the membership. Doesn't matter the level coach you are, you can see all of our 170 plus lectures sorted three different ways. Based on the level of expertise coach you are, aspiring, established, or head, you can sort it by every sport imaginable, and you can sort it by every topic in strength and conditioning. This makes all of the content consumable easy for you and for your staff members to be able to deep dive on any topic in strength and conditioning. Click the link down below to try the site out for 24 hours for only $1. Then your membership turns into a monthly membership where the price is less than $30 a month for $29.99, which is less than going out to dinner by yourself. You have access to all of this content. Click the link down below. What it means to do a cut. And if you just throw somebody into like a, a reactive situation, they can work around the issue. So a lot of times, you know, there's this whole concept of, of self-organization and it's like, well, you know, whatever, whatever the athlete comes up with, that's the best strategy because they self-organized it. But that's only true if they have options from which to self-organize. So if we're talking about like, you know, like doing a cut and you have an athlete, let's say they hurt their left knee and now they're planting off their left leg. If that, if that leg does not have you know, full range of motion does not have concentric and eccentric strength. Um, if, if it, if, you know, if in the, in the lower leg, right, even below the knee, like you don't have sufficient like elasticity and reactivity, you don't have the right mechanics at the hip like that, that, that you're not, you're never going to see what you want to see in a cut, what in a rehearsed 
activity or in a reactive activity because the joint, you don't, you don't have like the, the position and the motor control to, to do what it is that you, you want the athlete to do. So if you say, if an athlete, like even an uninjured athlete, if you're like, if you have them do that activity and they do something that doesn't look like quote unquote a good cut and you're like, well, that's how the athlete self-organized. Therefore, that's the best solution. You don't know if it's the best solution until you actually do a little bit of a deeper dive and you figure out like, well, can the athlete under maybe a more like a more rehearsed and a more controlled situation, can they actually do what we think looks like a good cut? And if in that situation they can do the good cut, but then in more of like a reactive sort of chaotic situation, they do something different. Well, maybe there is kind of adaptive value to doing what we think isn't the ideal cut because maybe the, the athlete in the more chaotic situation is accounting for more variables besides just like, hey, plant off your left leg and go to your right. But in a rehab setting, until you do the very, very controlled type of activities, you don't know if when you get into the more reactive situations that the athlete like has, again, has options from which to self-organize or basically can make a choice because granted these choices don't occur on a conscious level, but if the athlete can get into certain positions in a controlled environment, they're not going to do it when it's reactive and chaotic. So in a rehab setting, like, yeah, we're, we're doing like the control type things first. Assume once like strength and range of motion are, are, you know, achieved because we want to make sure that the athlete like can, let's say like when they, when they, you know, cut to the left that like their knee like actually will bend and they have some eccentric strength in their knee and they can use their quad to push off versus using more of a hip strategy where they're not got their knees, not going to amortize, so to speak, their knees, not going to bend. They're just going to kind of like vault off their hip or, you know, we want to make sure that an athlete that's cutting off the left leg, like in a controlled environment, they can, they can like have a kind of a lower, um, spend like a short amount of time on the ground. And maybe if they do something in a chaotic environment, if they're spending more time on the ground, it's because they, because it's because that's the right solution and not because in a more controlled environment, they don't have the ability to get off the ground quickly and have a low ground contact time. So that's where like, you know, again, in, in the strength and conditioning world, if, if we're working with like hundred percent healthy athletes, yeah, like I probably don't think there's that much of a place for some of these like more rehearsed type of change of direction scenarios. But in a rehab setting, you absolutely have to do that because you don't know, first of all, it's also safer, right? Like to take somebody and the first time they change direction, they're reacting to either like a tactile or an audible cue or to an opponent, like that's just not safe. I mean, from like a tissue tolerance standpoint, like we want to make sure that we can use progressive overload, even with a change of direction activity. And it's hard to do progressive overload and kind of like regress a change of direction when you have an opponent that's like you have to react to, right? So um, in the rehab setting, there's definitely a place for, for both like the fixed, so, you know, more predictable activities and the more reactive chaotic activities. For any of our listeners out there, regardless, private or university professional setting, exactly what you just said, Doug, is why I love DeMarco and Jordan and Elon's eight vector. And yeah, to I just, me, I just read that book actually. Right. And so you do that in your early off season or you do that in your early return to play because now, you know, with confidence, Hey, they've done mm -hmm. call it 180 back or call it, um, you know, straight back, whatever it is, zero degree cut, but you've done it right. right and left coming straight back 45 degrees down 90 degrees each way, 45 up. And then you can say it with some conviction and you can even regress that with the jumping that they've done, or you can do it where it's, 
maybe it's only, you know, a three yard uh, change in direction, 180 degrees back. You can do it five yards, 10 yards. So you're increasing the speed of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can even add an extra change in direction off of it. So now not for, for nothing more than to me personally, as the practitioner, I can sleep at night knowing that the joint angle specificity and the, the muscles, tendons, ligaments, like you've laid down that fascial strain. And then, yes, you could put, you know, your, use your hand and low level, shuffle them side to side where they're doing that perception, reacting to your hand in addition to all of that eight vector, right? No, that's great. And that also, I mean, you didn't ask this question specifically, but there's a whole controversy debate in rehab about like, what's sort of the, what's the best battery of tests to get somebody to like, to clear someone to play. And this, the thing is like, how many tests are you allowed to have? Because you made the point about the eight vector system that the eight vector system isn't an assessment. It's a training system. And to me, the training system and the the process of rehab is more diagnostic than saying like, we're going to do these four tests because it's like, all right, well, what four tests encompass all those things that you just mentioned and like all those different degrees of cuts. And then, you know, it's one thing doing a cut when you're entering the cut from like five meters versus 10. Like what's your, what, what, what kind of momentum are you generating before you go into the cut? You get that if you have the right training system and the right progression, just doing like a hop test or an isokinetic quad strength test. Like I'm not saying those things aren't valuable, but there's, there's no, there's no battery of tests unless you're doing like a hundred tests that are in my opinion, as predictive as the, the training process, assuming you have a good process. And that's, you know, I think, I think a lot of times, like, yeah. A lot of fields, whether it's physical therapy, strength and conditioning, they have to work at the lowest common denominator. So it's like, well, if we, at least if somebody passed these four tests, that's a minimum standard, but that still doesn't tell you anything because, you know, hop test, quad strength test, something else, you know, a broad jump, it's like, great, but that's, that's not nearly as comprehensive as something like the eight vector system. Now the eight vector system isn't a, a test that's like quantifiable necessarily. I mean, it is quantifiable that you can keep track of it, but it's not like a, a known validated, like here's an ACL return to return to sport test. But I would take something like the eight vector system over four or five tests that are validated in a research paper any day of the week, because that's exposed to the, the an athlete to way more things. And like, if something is, if there's a, like a chink in the athlete's armor, so to speak, it's going to be revealed in that eight vector system. It's not going to be revealed necessarily in four tests.